Hello and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Helen Lackner. Helen has worked in Yemen since the 1970s and lived there for 15 years. She's a regular Arab Digest contributor to our newsletter and podcasts and the author of Yemen in Crisis, The Road to War, published by Verso. It's a seminal study of the current war and what lies behind it, and a new edition with additional material will be released in January. Helen is with me today, though, to talk about her latest book. It's just out, published by Routledge, and it's called Yemen, Poverty and Conflict. Helen, welcome back to the podcast. Well, thank you for bringing me back and um, carrying on with this great work. Well, listen, I, I, I want to, I brought you back so we can talk about your new book that is rich in detail and analysis, and as ever with you, it very accessible. And I would say that for anyone even remotely interested in Yemen, I can't recommend it too highly. Now, we can't cover it all in the podcast, but let me begin by asking you about Ali Abdullah Saleh, who emerges as president of the Yemen Arab Republic in 1978, then in 1990 of the Unified Republic of Yemen, forced out in 2012, assassinated in 2017. Uh, an extraordinary character to my mind, a, a true autocrat. What was it that enabled him to consolidate and then hang on to power for such a long time? Yeah, Ali Abdullah Saleh is a really interesting character, and I'm actually surprised that no one's actually made a biography of him, because he has, you know, as you just said, he lasted a long time and he managed to stay in control of his country, which he once described as dancing on the heads of snakes. Not that I'm that keen on that image. And yes, he had. I think that there are a number of reasons why he managed to stay in power for quite so long. And they include the following. One, he had very, very good political skills, which is not something you necessarily learn at university, where as far as I know, he never went. But he obviously developed them from experience and from looking around him. One of the aspects of his political skills was his excellent memory which meant that he remembered everybody he'd ever met. And so if he met some minor sheikh from a minor tribe somewhere or other and hadn't seen him for 10 years, he'd remember the guy and know what that guy was interested in. So I think that's something that helped him uh, get a lot of support at the local level. A second element of his skill of his tactic was the divide and rule. I mean, he used it very effectively throughout the country at all times and with all social sectors. And on that one, it's also important to note that he didn't just promote people from certain social groups. As you know, Yemen has a hierarchy of, of ascribed social groups, i.e. groups that survive, get people, get from birth. And he promoted people from very low social groups, as well as the higher ones and the tribal ones, which are, of course, the majority of the population. So that was another element of his skill. A uh, third element, of course, that facilitated his uh, position, his remaining powerful for that time, was the fact that he lived and he ruled during a, a period when Yemen had significant oil income, or at least, you know, its oil income started in the mid-80s when he was in charge. And that gave him a, a lot of financial support and financial ability to run an advanced patronage system, which he ran all, you know, as long as he existed. So that gave the country, you know, gave him a comparative wealth or access to comparative funds. 
And that process also of the oil income had a fundamental social change effect in the country, insofar as prior to that, most of the income of the country came to the households from migrant workers and therefore basically bypassed the state and went directly to immediate beneficiaries. Whereas with the oil income coming also at a time when remittances were going down, it transferred power and economic financial power from households and villages to the central state because, of course, he controlled that money. And finally, I think, and I think that was an important element, when unity happened in 1990, it was at a time when both the YAR and the PDRY, i.e. the two previous states, were in crisis financially and politically. And he created Yemeni unity, which was something that was very popular with the people. So I think these are some of the elements that explain you know, his longevity. And of course, he had support, didn't he, from foreign powers as well that were perfectly happy to see him in place. Absolutely. Um, yes, I mean, he and the Saudis didn't exactly, you know, it wasn't a great love affair, but, you know, they were mutually useful to each other. And uh, and yes, he was supported not just by the Saudis. He, he very skillfully addressed issues, for example, with the USA. Immediately after 9-11, he was the first a president to come and visit the U.S. and provide support to Bush, you know, making it very clear that um, that you know he was on the on the right side as far as the Americans were concerned. Though he, you know, he was very ambiguous about that. And if you look in details at his relationship with Al Qaeda and uh, other groups, you know, you can see that um, he manipulated them. In, in him. You know, he basically used all these elements very much to his advantage in a very skillful manner. He had U.S. interests. He had, he, sorry, he had U.S. support. He had European support. Basically, uh, he had, you know, he, he also ran a country that had some semblance of democracy. I mean, the, the elections in Yemen were not complete farces. So you had, you know, you had some real elements which enabled him to gain international support as well as national support. And yet, in the end, he finally ran out of road, uh, didn't he? The Arab Spring caused his ouster. The Saudis were very influential in putting in Hadi as a successor, his his vice president. Uh, And, of course, he then allies himself with the Houthis. The Houthis turn against him in 2017, and he is assassinated, as you say, Someone should write a book about him. Perhaps it'll be you, Helen. I think he's an extraordinary character. Let me let me move on to 2015 and the Saudis led a coalition that took on the Houthis. Here we are seven years later. It's the Houthis who have the upper hand in this in this terrible war. Um, how do you explain the Houthis managing to put themselves into such a position? over these um, seven years of war? Here again, you know, there are a number of different factors that have brought this about. The first thing to remember is the Houthis had been at war against the Saleh regime from 2004 onwards in a series of six different sort of episodes of fighting. And it, the course of these six episodes, the Houthis gained more and more military capacity from experience on the ground. 
And so they were a much stronger military group in 2011, 12, 13, whenever, than they had been 10 years earlier. So they gained, you know, military capacity. I think when you look also at, at the the current situation, you know, one of the elements that, that gives the Houthis strength is simply the fact that they are united and they are fighting a completely divided uh, set of uh, different groups, I mean, or different entities. So you don't have you don't have two groups fighting each other. You have the Houthis on the one side and the divided set of entities that are supposed to be allied on the other side. So I think that's another very important element. I think a third element is is the fact that, you know, the coalition fighting on the ground has been by Yemenis, whom I've just described, uh, you know, as very divided on the one hand, and that the international, the Saudi and the Emirati involvement has been primarily air attacks. I mean, there have been ground activities, but they're much more limited. And, you know, air attacks do not are not that effective. They are good at killing a lot of people, including a lot of innocent people, but militarily they aren't necessarily that effective except in certain circumstances. A third element is that the Houthis in the area that they control, and it's always worth remembering that although the geographical area they control is relatively small and represents about a third of the country, the, the demographic uh, control is over almost 70%, so of more than two-thirds of the population. And with all, you know, within these areas, they are running an incredibly effective police state. And it's a very authoritarian and very repressive regime, which they are running very effectively. So between these factors, you know, uh, uh, you get a clear indication of how and why you know, they've managed to basically have the upper hand nowadays and have had it now for a few years. Maybe they didn't have it right at the beginning, but they certainly have had it in the last two or three years. Mm. Um, an area that's crucial to Yemen and one you've done seminal work on over many years is the issue of water, particularly in the context of climate change now. What is the situation today and how... And why has it deteriorated so dramatically from what it was in the 1980s when you first were working on rural development and water concerns? I think if you're looking back 40 years, you know, the, there's a number of factors that have gradually worsened the situation. And the primary, the two main ones really, on the one hand, the increased demand, increased urban demand and, and increased rural demand from the population in terms of domestic water usage. And secondly, the, the very considerable increase, which had already started, but it has increased and worsened, of deep well irrigation for, you know, cash crops. You know, Yemen, like most other countries, uses, the estimate is about 90% of its water on agriculture. It might be a bit less or a bit more, but, you know, that gives you an indication. And the fact that you know, the groundwater and particularly the fossil supplies, i.e. the non-replaceable supplies, are being extracted largely by deep well irrigation from done by large landholders for cash crops, is has had a very, very massive impact. And as of the last time there's been any serious study, and again, all of these are estimates, you know, one third of the water extracted is... 
um, is fossil water and non-replaceable. I think the important thing also to remember when you're talking about water is that, you know, you cannot have a blanket view of all of Yemen. The situation depends, uh, differs fairly considerably in different areas according to agroecological zones, according to soil structures, according to water basins, etc. So all these factors, which are extremely important, you know, play a role. And of course, the fact that the climate change impact has increased very dramatically in the last 20 years or so. So you have a very fundamental issue, and that is, it also threatens the mere existence of Yemen, because unless it's addressed, and dealt with effectively by, you know, appropriate policies, you will soon have forced migration out of Yemen due to climate stroke water reasons. Yeah, that's a, that's a very um, disturbing picture, isn't it? Because as you say, without without water, you there is there is no life, and therefore there could be very serious pressures uh, on on people simply fleeing from a situation. I mean, how how close are we to that? kind of catastrophic scenario well it's very hard to tell you know there there is no um it's not clear it, in some respect it has already happened you have some areas of the country where villagers have been permanently abandoned because they no longer have any water again it's you know this isn't really a process that there's water one day and no water the next you know if the rains fail the well dry out, people go and get water or buy water from nearby wells, nearby villages, they have it trucked in, you know, they, they then, you know, after a while when they get fed up with this, they go away and stay somewhere else with relatives or friends and, you know, over a period of years they eventually just give up and move out. Mm. So again, it's not an instantaneously instantaneous process, but it has, it has actually started. I think, you know, the issues, I mean, to predict exactly when things will happen, I think is maybe hydrologists might be able to do that, but I certainly wouldn't. Uh, but I think if you're looking within 20 to 30 years, you're talking about a situation where many parts of the country will be uninhabitable, unless, of course, serious measures are taken. I mean, as I said earlier, you know, if if that percentage of whether it's 80 or 90 percent of Yemen's water is used in agriculture, you know, if you re reduce that quantity and transfer it to domestic use and to livestock use, you know, you, you, you can create a perfectly livable situation. I mean, it does require serious changes in agricultural policy, and it's, it requires an effective uh, government which is capable of enforcing its decisions. But of course, these things can be done. Uh, but clearly, that's not going to happen until after this war is finished, hopefully. Mm. Now, in the book, you write about how the West has viewed relations with Yemen through a lens that is distorted by an emphasis on security, not for Yemenis, but primarily for the U.S. and the U.K. C can you talk about that a little more? I find it extremely depressing. I mean, not just with respect to Yemen, but with many other countries. You know, most Western states' development aid and development support, so-called, so is primarily designed to address the own problems of the Western stroke Northern states rather than the actual problems of the country that is supposedly being helped. And I think in the case of Yemen, you have, you know, very, you've had very minimal support, you know, and, and it was insignificant really with respect to the needs of the country. 
Well, as soon as, you know, Al-Qaeda appeared on the scene and there was this idea that there was, you know, international jihadi terrorists based in Yemen, suddenly, you know, there was a sudden flood of interest. And instead of supporting Yemeni education, agriculture and development, you know, there was massive amounts of support in security and police training and selling of weapons, etc. You know, primarily seen through the lens of Western, you know, U.S. secure British security, and I know that you know just before the the Olympics that were held in Britain, whenever it was, twenty twelve or something, you know, there there was the, the Downing Street's interest in Yemen was we want to make sure that there's no terrorist incident coming from Yemen during the Olympics. You know, it wasn't that we want the Yemenis to to have what they need in terms of health, education, etc. It was we want to make sure they don't come and um, blow up anything in, in Britain during the during this event. So I think, you know, the, the, the emergence of jihadism and the same situation is just as true for the US, I mean, if not more so. And somebody once said, you know, that the US didn't have a Yemen policy, they had a counter-terrorism policy. So I think this is a phenomenon which is not unique to Britain and the US and Yemen, but it's a general phenomenon, which I think is, um, I think has also contributed worldwide to the rise of insecurity and the worsening of poverty that is, you know, witnessed in many places. And Yemen has felt particularly acutely um, because uh, of the situation you mentioned the the weapons and security. Well, that all benefited Salah in in his dictatorship, and of course that increased the resentment and uh, the extremism. Always grows out of uh, situations where the elite is enriched and the poor are further impoverished. Can I just add something to what you were just saying? Hmm. You know what surprises me when it comes to Yemen and jihadis and all these organizations is not how many people join it. It's how few people join it. You know, when you look at the economic conditions, at the worsening of people's uh, living conditions, the lack of jobs, the lack of opportunities, and as you just said, the enrichment of the few and the impoverishment of the many, and the, the absence of any alternative political program, i.e. the absence of political parties or better options, you know, the jihadi option is the only one around. And, and on that basis... As I just said, I'm more surprised at how few people join. And, and indeed, in Yemen, there are very few. I mean, I, I have no idea what the figures are, but the few I've seen are extremely low, rather than how many are joining. That's a very good point. And had the emphasis been more on building of infrastructure and supporting uh, those kinds of approaches that would benefit the many, as opposed to the choice to benefit the few, then jihadism would not be the problem that that it is and 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 you make a very good point about that um going back to this war uh, in 2015 the saudis and the emiratis went in as partners but as you have uh, mentioned already in the book uh, it soon became clear they have different agendas what has that meant for the war and and how the wars played out and also i suppose for the more more importantly the people of yemen yes i think you know, that's contributed to, to answering really your very first question, the fact that there is this unity between the two main international partners of the internationally recognized government is something that 
has, you know, that has been also to the benefit of the Houthis. And it also, you know, it, it obviously contributes very, very significantly to the to the divisions and problems within the anti-Houthi front. I mean, the latest development this year of the creation of the Presidential Leadership Council of Eight Men, no women as usual, you know, is a clear example of um, attempting to to stick together a bunch of people who share absolutely nothing. I mean, they do share one thing. They share opposition to the Houthis. But apart from that, they hate each other more than they, you know, than anything else. So, uh, and in particular, you know, the fact that the basically the Saudis are supporting certain elements in this new presidential council and the Emiratis are supporting particularly the southern separatist factions, in particularly the Southern Transitional Council. So you have a situation where that and that entity is actually split in half almost. If uh, Actually, I think calling it split in half is optimistic. It's probably split into eight different elements. <laughs> so the fact that, you know, this has a big impact on the on the fight, on the policies that are attempted, I think also it probably has some impact on the military aspects, but I really wouldn't know about that. And at the moment, I think by now, although two or three years ago, maybe longer, you know, the differences between the Saudis and the Emiratis were basically only to be seen in Yemen. I think when you look at the situation now, Yemen is only one of the different elements of the problems between these two states. And I think we will only see an increase in 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 divergence between Saudi and the Emiratis on a number of fronts. Um, though they might on Yemen, they might possibly unite again. But I think, as the general rule, they are basically going on divergent and increasingly uh, competitive paths. I would say. Mm. Um, in looking for solutions, uh, you argue that in many ways the international community, including the UN has succeeded in only making matters worse. Uh, I'll quote from the book, the solution to the Yemeni crisis has to be found by Yemenis. They have to realize that the international community is not able to solve their political problems. I suppose the question for me is, Helen, given the fractured nature of the conflict, is this something that Yemenis can actually do? Well, I think that's a really difficult question, but the fact is they'll have to because nobody else will do it. You know, there, there's this general idea that the international community is always appealed to as this sort of abstraction that is going to solve people's problems. I mean, you see it after every natural disaster. You see it after in every war. You see people, you know, in that deep misery, you know, saying, where's the international community? Well, in reality, the internet, the the concretization of the international community is the United Nations system. And the United Nations system does not have either the authority or the capacity to impose anything on anybody. So they can't, you know, the, the UN special envoy in Yemen, for example, you know, the current one who is certainly far more skilled and far more effective than any of his predecessors, you know, he is ultimately only a mediator. He can help. He can talk to people. He can listen to people. But he cannot impose anything. He doesn't have the means to impose anything. So ultimately, 
you know, and in addition, we have the two main states involved in Yemen who have their own interests and their own objectives, which aren't necessarily those of Yemenis. So ultimately, you know, we have a situation where the Yemenis will have to find a solution because, and, and the UN and others may, I mean, I'm sure the UN will try to help. And I think others might possibly try to hinder, but, um, but there's little doubt that ultimately they'll have to, even if there is no obvious um, mechanism for them to do so. I mean, the obvious mechanism for them to do so would be to, you know, have one, to have discussions between the different factions and two to replace all the political leaders by a new lot who want to who actually care about the fate of the Yemeni people but I don't see either of these happening next week mm. now in January a revised edition of Yemen in crisis which is a brilliant book I, I thoroughly again recommend that people buy it it comes out, the revised edition, and in it you'll be looking at the humanitarian situation in detail. But while we're awaiting the new edition, can you give our listeners a sense of how severe the humanitarian situation is right now? Yeah, I think there's two aspects. I mean, in the new chapter for Yemen in crisis, you know, I'm looking at two different aspects fundamentally. One is the severity of crisis and it's, you know, the, the reality of it versus what is being last talked to. And the other one is the approach and the mechanisms of how it has been addressed or for which there are, you know, significant criticisms that need to be done. I mean, the severity of the crisis is that at the moment, 17 million Yemenis out of about 30 million are considered to be over an IPC3 or above, which means basically um, inadequately fed. Uh, IPC4 is really extreme and uh, IPC5 is famine, but it's not actually, there aren't any people, thank God, in that in category at the moment in Yemen. But basically, IPC, you know, IPC3 plus is, is really severe and you have 17 million people in that situation. And you have about half the medical facilities not working, and you also have significant um, numbers of schools not operating, etc. The biggest problem this year is the significant underfunding of the United Nations Humanitarian Response Plan, which is financed at about 55% a couple of days ago. I haven't actually checked today, but we are now in the last month of the year. So even if it's hit a few more than 55%, you know, we're a long, long way from what is needed. And I think the important thing also here to notice is that the one year when the humanitarian funding was high at 87%, that was in 2019, was the year when both the Saudis and the Emiratis contributed significant amounts to this funding. Whereas this year, the Saudis have contributed, last time I looked, 9.5%, and the Emiratis had contributed 1%. So you're in a situation where you have a big, big gap between the needs. And as a result of that, for in particular, the food aid and the financing for food aid, which is the main, main element of the humanitarian support, you know, is significantly below what is required. What are minimum rations normally distributed by the World Food Programme are down to, you know, 65% distributions instead of being monthly in many places, every six weeks or eight weeks. So you're talking about a worsening situation. Um, I don't know if they have in the last day or two produced anything for plan for 2023, 
but they often produce that pretty very, very late. And funding, you know, pledging conferences usually happen in February or March. So we're talking about a pretty bad situation. I think one thing that's always worth noting is that the main funders of the humanitarian aid are the main perpetrators of the war. At least they have been in the past. As I said, the United the Emirates and the Saudis have contributed a lot in earlier years, not this year. Uh, and the third most important funder, who is now for this year the main one, is the US. So you have a situation where people, or sorry, where states that are involved in the in the warfare are actually directly or indirectly, obviously in the case of the states, it's very indirect. I think the other aspect that's covered in that chapter is very much the management and the way the United Nations has op is operating the aid sector. And there have been some very serious and deep criticisms of that. And, you know, it is by no means done as well as it could be, I think, is what I would say at this point and let people read the chapter in the new book. All right. That's put diplomatically. Um, Finally, Helen, I wanted to ask you, if Yemen is not to split into a series of probably warring statelets, what sort of a unified Yemen could emerge if or rather when peace finally breaks out? There's two points to be made here, really. The first one is that the idea that Yemen can split back into the two states that existed pre-1990, I think is completely unrealistic. I don't think this will happen. Uh, the reason I don't think it will happen is not that people, some of whom are working very hard to achieve this, don't want it. The reason it won't happen is that if it happens within an extremely short period of time, further fighting will break out within, at the very least, the southern entity and possibly also the, north, the other entity. So the re the redivision of Yemen into two states, I think, is not possible. And as you just said, the likelihood of a multiplicity of, of statelets is one of the options. The other option, which is obviously the far better option, is a form of federalism. I mean, that is what the National Dialogue Conference had come out with in, in 2014 and has been... Uh, put into the, the new draft constitution of 2015, which of course never happened. But, and I think, you know, the, the, the concept of federalism is by far the most appropriate for a future Yemen. Uh, I think it has to be designed in a very different way from the way that the original 2014-15 uh, model, which was simply gluing together a number of governorates on an administrative basis and according to somewhat sometimes obscure political factors, in other times fairly clear political factors. And it should be, you know, the federal entity should be worked out on the basis of, you know, a complex uh, combination of factors, including access to natural resources, in particular water, but also other resources, uh, sociocultural cohesion, demographic factors, and basically, you know, working out the best possible fit of these, because there's no way they're going to fit 100% everywhere, to create a set of, of entities or regions within a federal state. Again, you know, these are issues that need to be done dealt with by constitutional experts, not by myself. But the principles, you know, would be very reasonable 
And I think they would also allow for the kind of social and cultural exceptionalism or whatever the social and cultural views, self-identities that the people have in different areas to flourish in a way and to operate in a way that would not be negative. I mean, that would actually help to rebuild the country. A daunting task, uh, but as as you say, the solution to the crisis has to be found by Yemenis. Uh, one scarcely knows where one begins with that, but I think you would agree that women need to be very much a part of that process. And for the sake of the people of Yemen, uh, surely the the better, the sooner rather that this process begins, uh, the better for for, for the uh, for the people. Indeed, it would be nice to see some positive changes happening in Yemen. Ideally, maybe next year, we can hope. We can always hope, is what I'm always saying. We can always hope. Helen, thank you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And hopefully next time we'll talk about Yemen, we might have something more positive to talk about. Let us hope. Let us hope. Thank you. You've been listening to the Herb Digest podcast. My guest today was the Yemen expert and regular Digest contributor, Helen Lackner. Her latest book, Yemen, Poverty and Conflict, published by Routledge, is just out, and a revised edition of Yemen in Crisis, The Road to War, will be released by Verso in January. I recommend them both highly. We welcome your comments. It's been a little more than two years since we launched the podcasts, In that time, they've been listened to more than 100,000 times in countries right around the world. So, thank you to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Amazon Music. In addition to our podcasts, the Herb Digest daily newsletter features the very best Amina analysts, analysts like Helen. If you'd like a free trial to the newsletter, simply go to herbdigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. If you're a student or academic, check if your university library has an Arab Digest subscription. If so, you can access the Digest for free. And if not, ask for your library to consider getting one. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.